Welcome back to the What's Your More podcast. I'm your host, Quentin Harris, and today I'm joined with one of my standing guests. Uh, once a month, twice a month, Daniel Howerson from Bank of England Mortgage comes on the show, helps us with these lending updates, brings us up to speed with all the guideline changes and some new events that are you know taking place in the lending world and the dreaded rate conversation that we love to have towards the tail end of every one of these. But Daniel, welcome back to the show. It's great having you on here. Yeah, one of these days, this rate update is going to be sunshine and rainbows, and <laughs> we're going to be rocking and rolling yeah, again. Yeah, we'll get there. It's coming. It's coming. But before we get started on that, you know, uh, always thank you for having, having you on the show today. It's always great the insight you bring. Um, you know, usually I do this at the end, but I thought let's kick it off different this way. Where, where can the folks that have been listening learn more about Bank of England Mortgage and about yourself? Give us some information where we can go ahead and get that out there. Uh, easiest way, you can find us online at boejax.com uh, or give us a call at 904-992-1000 uh, on all the normal social platforms as well. But I'd be lying to you if I told you I knew the... Uh, Instagram handle. So uh, Bank of England, Jacksonville on, on social. There it is. Absolutely. Well, now that you know where to find him, you're going to want to pay attention because he's got some good stuff to start the day. So let's kick it off. We have some guideline changes on a much needed multifamily product that's out there. You know, when it comes to duplex, triplexes, quadplexes, we call those multifamilies. Uh, little LTV constriction over the years, and now it's been opened back up. And you want to kind of bring us up to speed on some of the guideline changes that I think are rather huge for the purchase market moving forward. Yeah, they definitely are, and and I think it's just more the you know, the affordability hot button, right? We keep pushing that, yeah. and uh, so Fannie Mae essentially came out and said, effective here in the next few weeks, uh, they're lowering the down payment requirements on uh, two to four unit properties when being when when purchased as a primary residence. So, essentially, previously, if somebody wanted to buy a, a two unit property, even if they're going to live in one side, the down payment requirement was fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. And a three to four unit, once again, even if they wanted to live in a unit, 25% was the down payment requirement. And that has been changed uniform across the board to 5%. So uh, ultimately, if you're somebody that wants to buy a multi-unit property, you can live in one unit, rent out the other one, two, or three units, and put down as little as 5%. And the reason that's strong is because not all of these multi families are one FHA approved, fit in the FHA loan limit requirements, you know, uh, and we'll get into that here in a minute. But, you know, as you get into more units in this property, the loan limits go up. Correct. 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 So there's a lot of opportunity there. And, you know, this kind of bleeds into the whole house hacking definition. You know, this has been one of the things that if you're a younger person and you understand the mentality of buying that multifamily as your first home, boy, does it open up a window of just huge opportunities for you as a potential landlord moving forward on that investment property. And as affordability gets uh, tighter, that becomes even more of an attractive option, right? Bingo. So if you're a real estate agent or a mortgage lender listening to this, you might be thinking, okay, well, I haven't sold a duplex or a triplex in years. Right. Uh, I haven't financed, maybe I finance, you know, a handful or less, Mm -hmm. two to four unit properties every year. But I think that it's an opportunity to go back and say, okay, I have this list of people that we pre-approved that wanted to buy a house that couldn't make the numbers work. And what a good opportunity to go back to them and say, hey, have you considered this option? Right. Uh, because, you know, at the end of the day, there's there's been a push from the agencies for affordability. And, and this is part of it. You know, there was some legislation passed by the Biden administration a little ways back that still working through some kinks, but essentially allowing for accessory units to be built on properties without as many restrictions, you know, Right now, zoning in a lot of areas would prevent something like that. Um, so that's something that they're they're kind of making a strong push towards in the future as well. And it really just comes down to how do we how do we make housing more affordable? And since they can't figure out a way to subsidize the cost of building homes, then they they turn to this and say, okay, well, 
if there are other people living on the yeah. property, if rental income can help to offset some of the affordability. So I think that in practical application, it's, hey, are there two to four unit properties out there for sale? And if so, maybe let's re-engage with some of those buyers and say, hey, I realize rates have gone up. I realize prices have gone up, but here's a guideline that has changed that maybe would allow you to be able to purchase a home and make the payment work when you account for the rents, make the, the payment work with where you wanted to be. Yeah. And I want to ask two things here before we move on to the next topic. Would you agree that there's a huge push for affordable housing, more importantly, uh, just affordability in general by this administration? Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's 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 a, a topic of conversation and it needs to be. Yeah, it absolutely needs to be. And then the second thing is, if I'm struggling to find a house that's affordable for me and I'm a single person or, or I have a family, it doesn't matter, and this opportunity to where I could help subsidize the mortgage payment by bringing in three tenants and a, a quadplex, that would help offset that. Without a doubt. Yeah. And so I think that's what you're seeing happen like this. And as inventory continues to be restricted, we're going to see some of these caps that the agencies, being Fannie and Freddie, have put on these loan products start to come off a little bit. And I wouldn't be surprised. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it wouldn't surprise me if the 40-year AM comes back from Fannie Mae if these rates continue to maintain at a higher level for much longer. You could see the 40-year amateurization that came around in 2008 through 2012 come back into the mix to kind of help alleviate some of that affordability. I think it prob probably could be on the table. It's at least, at least a topic of conversation, I would imagine, that yeah. they're having right now. I could see it when they announced the new loan limits. And speaking of that, it's a nice segue right yeah, into the next topic go. here, is that, you know, loan limits are going to increase. They they don't always do, but the announcement of whether they're going to stay the same or they're going to increase is going to come out in late November. And that's all based on the data that comes from the FHFA, the Federal Housing Finance Agency. And so they they go ahead and they look each month to month of what the increase in the price index is per home. And it continues to go up. For the first couple of months, it was down, but now it's kind of corrected itself and gone back up. And that accounts for all the financed you know, uh, homes and, and the price points associated with that. And there's a lot of rumblings that it's going to go up again this year. And I know that's hard to believe for a lot of people, especially considering the sub-sub markets, people are seeing values kind of maybe remain flat. I've heard little, little of our listeners say they're, they're down just a little bit, but for the for the mass majority of the audience, they're seeing appreciation. Some markets even 8%. So there's ideology that this is going to go up. And you want to go ahead and share with us what that is going to look like potentially going to 2024? As far as home prices go, you know, statistically, according to all five of the major data aggregators, we have hit new peaks in housing prices. So if you're in a sub-market where prices are maybe not as strong, that's certainly possible. But as right. a whole, prices have gone up. They don't raise the loan limits if prices don't go up. So... And we sat for 10 years. So that's right, right. And we were stuck at 417 for the longest years, time. For a decade, and, right. And now we're at 726, 200. Um, but I think that it's it's interesting. We talked about this last year. In, in a, over the course of the last few years, we've seen more some mortgage companies that have come out and said around this time of year, hey, we're going to increase the loan limit mm -hmm. arbitrarily to this new number even though Fannie Mae doesn't announce it until November because we're confident that it's going to be more than what we're going to to allow for. Right. So last year, a lot of companies, I think it was even August, September, came out and said, hey, bring us your $720,000 loans, uh, which was a pretty sizable increase from where the loan limits were at that yeah. time. Uh, and then, you know, the back half of the year, prices started to come down a little bit. And um, I'm sure some of those folks were maybe sweating that a little bit because Fannie Mae hadn't announced. But anyway, so they said 720 was the number we'll take. Loan limit ended up sliding in at 726, 200. So it worked Pretty out. Pretty good guess. Yeah. It worked out. But, uh, you know, the back half of the year, 
prices didn't continue on the same tear, obviously. But um, but essentially, there have been you know a select number of lenders that have come out and said, "Hey, we'll take your seven hundred fifty thousand dollars loans effective immediately," which means that they probably have a pretty good indication that the loan limit's going to be somewhere higher than seven hundred fifty thousand yeah, dollars. I would say so. So the the big takeaway there is within the next few weeks, as you're listening to this, Fannie Mae will announce those new loan limits moving into January. Now you sh- now you could have buyers that could close on them before the end of the year, uh, potentially. But uh, moving into next year, you can expect to see another, you know, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollar increase in the loan limits. Which once again, loan limits don't go up if prices don't go up. Yeah, and if I'm a real estate agent listening to this, <clears throat> I kind of wanted to explain why this is so important to you, your buyers, and more importantly, your sellers, because the 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 side of the table that absorbs this newly created affordability, and that's what this is. You're going to go from 726, 700 to 750 plus and some change, right? You just created an additional 20 to 25,000 worth of affordability for that buyer now to put less down payment down to get a larger loan amount. Now, that's what I mean by affordability in this equation. I don't mean like rates and uh, I mean affordability as far as putting less money, leveraging your money, putting less down to get more. The, the seller is ultimately going to absorb that. So now, Take it a step further. If you had that home that was, you know, I don't know, seven seventy five. Now the borrower is having to put the difference between seven seventy five, seven twenty six, seven hundred. Now it's going to be seven fifty, maybe seven fifty five. That's a lot less for them to put down. I mean, they still got to put the five percent down, so technically they'd be below that. But my point is, they're not having to put as much down in order to get a higher price point, which makes the homes in that seven seventy five to eight hundred a heck of a lot more attractable now for financing because you're opening up a larger pool of buyers that now can come in and make that affordable down payment and get that home. It's a big win. And it also is a situation where you say, to your point, Daniel, these aren't going up if home prices aren't going up. And I think that's the big takeaway. If I'm a real estate agent right now and I've got buyers that are waiting on prices to, mm-hmm. to do something besides what they're doing, which is go up. Yeah either flatten off or go down, it's a great opportunity to share this and say, hey, loan limits are going up, and that happens because prices are going up. Yep. So if you're waiting on prices to go down, well, we've, we've, certainly, um, we've, we've certainly said that a few times, <laughs> but if you're waiting on prices to go down, you know, probably not going to be a good, a good year for you when you look at this again next year. Yeah, and, uh, you know, if, if we haven't, haven't kind of, you know, got your attention yet. This next segment coming up here about the job market, what's going on, how it's tied to interest rates and where the Federal Reserve's pivot is really coming in. We're going to talk that bonds and more, but first a word from our sponsor and we'll be right back. I've been in the lending business for 20 years. I've seen many different lenders. During those 20 years, I recognized there's a difference between being an originator and an advisor. The team at Bank of England is full of advisors. They take their time to understand your needs. They take the time to structure a mortgage for you and your family. And I cannot recommend them enough. If you're in the market to purchase a home, maybe it's a second home, maybe it's an investment property, or you're looking to refinance your current property that you live in, take a minute to work with the advisors at Bank of England Mortgage. They're a nationwide lender and you can find your local branch at boemortgage.com because it's more than loans, it's people. Thanks so much for letting us give a shout out to our sponsor. All right, now back to the podcast. 
All right, welcome back. So, hey, we're going to get into the jobs market here a little bit with Daniel and talk into bonds, rates, Federal Reserves. And, I mean, I'm looking at this lending update, and it's pages for days on this. Daniel really got into some graphs, did his homework. And if you want to take a look at some of these graphs, take a look at the lending update, follow us on our YouTube channel, click subscribe. All the information will be down there in the bottom. And you can also check it out on our socials as we put graphs and images from the show in there at What's Your One More with the number one. So, Daniel, kick it right off here, man. Yeah, Sunday morning was a couple cups of coffee and about every graph that I could find <laughs> on the because the Jags weren't playing at 930. 40, you had time. 40, 47 tabs open on my, <laughs> my browser. But, uh, you know, I, I think that if you are a, a regular listener to this, you're probably tired of listening to how interest rates are going up. Right? Sure. Um, and we're tired of talking about rates going up. And we're trying to use reverse psychology. If you quit talking about them going up, they're actually going to come down. That's right. Right. That's so we're right. going to let it lie. So, but I think it's important for a couple of reasons. The first thing is this is what buyers want to know about right mm -hmm. now. Buyers aren't really concerned about prices. If interest rates were 3%, There'd be no buyers talking about, I want to wait for prices to come down. At least there'd be significantly less, right? A lot less. You know, of all the objections you get, it really stems, stems from rates are higher, my payment's higher, and I don't know what to do. And while your client maybe doesn't need the level of detail that we give here, I think that understanding, having some context can really help you to answer some questions, maybe help give people a realistic idea of what, you know, some people anticipate happening in the future, right? Well, to your point, when you go to the doctor, if you got a doctor that's talking over your head about something that's going on with you, you would rather have the doctor that has the bedside manner that can give a little <laughs> bit more understanding, make you feel more comfortable, even though the news and the outcome is the exact same, right? Correct. So that's what we're trying to do is, is offer some comfort here to where if you're a real estate agent or a mortgage professional, you can offer that bedside manner in this case to your buyer or to your seller. Well, I think the, the other point, <clears throat> which we've talked about a little bit before, is if you've got buyers that are on the fence or actively looking or, you know, incubating, let's right. call it. You want to let them know when rates are going up because if they got out of the housing market at, let's say they got out at 5%, mm -hmm. said, I don't want to buy anymore. Well, if you didn't let them know the rates went to 6 and you didn't let them know the rates went to 7 and you didn't let them know the rates went to 8 and then rates come back down to 6, well, you know, you're going to call them and say, hey, Rates are 6%. <laughs> You're well, going to be thrilled. <laughs> Daniel, I told you I wasn't going to buy at 5. Why would I buy at 6? Right. But if you told them, hey, rates are 6. Now rates are 7. Now rates are 8. Oh, rates are back down to 6.5. Okay, well, now I'm thinking, okay, well, now is an opportunity to take advantage, right? Sure. So they're a component of talking about rates all the time and unfortunately talking about higher rates is you have to reset expectations because 5%... Maybe not a reasonable expectation for right now, for 2024. Maybe as we move into 2025, who Why knows? And things could happen. Things can change quickly. So maybe 5% is in the cards, but I think you also have to reframe. So, mm -hmm. you know, just to kind of get into it here, we we kind of changed the, the way we're doing this a little bit. So, you know, in the past was, was essentially um, October would have been basically all of the data from August. Right. Kind of re redid this a little bit, wait another week, and then that way we can give September's data. So as you're listening to this, there will always be new new information coming out. So it will not always be the day after the information comes out, but it gives you a little bit more real time than the way we we're doing it. So so we're talking about September here. Rates went up from essentially a little over 7% to about 7.5%. They've climbed even a little bit more to start the month of October. But, you know, what's what's the culprit, I think, is is really... Uh, important here. And we talked last last update, talked about how inflation's coming down. And we spent a lot of time on jobs. Mm -hmm. And we're going to do the same thing again, because in the month of September, um, CPI headline inflation did not change. It's 3.7%. Despite 
pretty significant increase in fuel prices, you know, gasoline specifically, mm -hmm. really driving that number up from when, when, when it was at 3%, you know, it's now at 3.7, stayed at 3.7, but fuel prices really kind of were the primary driver of higher right. inflation. You look at core CPI, which once again, we're taking food and energy out of the equation, and it came down again. So it came down from 4.3 to 4.1%, still not 2%, right? But that's six consecutive months of declines on the core CPI. Mm -hmm. So if I'm a Fed member right now, if I'm, if I'm just looking at inflation as the basis for what I want to do with interest rates, you're firmly in restrictive territory, right? You got 4% core inflation. You got five and a quarter to five and a half federal funds rate. So you are firmly in restrictive territory at that point, mm -hmm. meaning that interest rates are higher than inflation. Right. So, and furthermore, you know, if you replace what the shelter costs are that are currently being included in the um, CPI with what the real true increases in shelter costs are, technically the core CPI would be 2.3%. We're already there. So you can't really, I realize you can't just take one thing you don't like, replace it and say, well, now it's 2.3%, <laughs> right? But the reality is we know those costs are coming down. Could other costs go up in that time frame? Sure. sure. So there's a variable there, but the point is, Shelter is the largest component of CPI. It's going to continue to come down. So if you're a Fed member looking at this, yeah, you'd love to be at 2% today, but you're probably looking at this saying, strictly as it pertains to the inflation readings, we're in a good spot, right? Yeah. And I think what the Fed's target's 2% inflation, right? If you're really looking at a real-time moving target or 2.3, that's what I meant by saying we're already there. Right. And there's an argument to be had, hey, listen, just leave it alone. Let it run through the system. Don't hike anything. And we'll get there. Be patient and we'll get there. And then there's another argument that says you've already done too much. You might want to back off a little bit, meaning lower those rates just a little bit from where they are. And we'll talk about that here in a minute. But this 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 ideology of, of shelter and CPI, for our audience, this is maybe listening for the first time, CPI is the consumer price index. Correct. That's the, that's the true measure of inflation for the consumer. It's what you're paying for the items at the store, at the pump, et cetera, energy cost. That's different than the PCE, which is the model that the Federal Reserve looks at the core. But what Daniel's referring to right now is the one that actually hits the consumer the most where you feel the impact. That's the consumer price index. Correct. And with respect to inflation, I mean, when you look at where the federal funds rate is right now, like I said, five and a quarter to five and a half, the reality is jacking that federal funds rate up more is not going to lower uh, auto insurance premiums, no. which are up 20% year over year. Obviously, they don't have the same weighting as shelter does, but it's still a component that's driving up inflation. Sure. So what the consumer has to pay money. It's not going to change. It's not going to change fuel prices, mm -hmm. right? So at some point, you're in restrictive territory. Being more restrictive is not going to really do anything for the items that are impacting inflation which is why we talk about jobs, right? And, and I think that, you know, the Federal Reserve will never come out and say this, but they don't think that inflation will stay at or below 2% unless the labor market weakens considerably and does some damage on the economy. And then that will put a big enough dent in consumer confidence and consumer spending to keep inflation below 2%, you know, They'll feel confident that it's not going to go back above yeah. that. Yeah, and they'll never stand at the podium and say, we got to lose a ton of jobs. They, they like the term softening of the labor market. Sure, they like the, the term softening. But, you know, the reality is when they talk about more rate hikes, at this point, what they're saying is we know more rate hikes 
will directly impact the labor market. Yeah. They could easily get inflation to 2% if they jack the federal funds rate up to 10%. Yeah. And they'll, just, cra- they'll, they'll, they'll create a massive recession, right? Yeah. But they could easily they could do, do it. it. Well, to draw a really quick timeline from point A to Z here, just to explain what you're saying, is they raise these short-term interest rates. It's actually tightening companies' abilities to grow. It's actually shrinking their ability to grow and actually thus causing constriction. And that means they're going to lay people off, right? Because they can't develop new product because the price doesn't make sense, new factories, new jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So when Daniel says increasing this is going to trickle down to the job market, it takes time to cycle through that. We've already made through that cycle. We're starting to see it happen right now, which is what you're going to get into these jobs numbers. And, you know, this is a, a topic I just did a whole <laughs> podcast on. It's yep. about to drop here. And this one, uh, this one cracks me up, but let's go ahead and get into these made up numbers awesome. and then the reports that are pretending to be reports and, you know, all the other stuff that goes with it. So it's a tale of two reports is really <laughs> kind of what it, what it comes yeah. down to. So, so if we're looking at the job picture right now, one of the, one of the primary things that, that the feds are looking at is initial jobless claims. Mm-hmm. And as you might imagine, that is people filing for unemployment for the first time. So I've lost my job and I'm, apply, I'm applying for unemployment for the first time. They have continuing claims, but, but initial jobless claims is a really good benchmark and something that the markets are really... Um, they have a lot of, of interest in right now. They're really paying attention to it because that is a leading indicator of what the job reports are going to look like, right? Correct. So if you have unusually low jobless claims, chances are you're not going to have, uh, chances are you're going to have more, uh, stronger jobs report, more job creations because if less people are losing their jobs, well, that would probably, or if less people are filing for unemployment, that means less people are losing their job, yeah, right? And just so our audience knows, the jobless claims report comes out Every, Every Thursday. Thursday. Yep. It's the amount of people that are getting <clears throat> unemployment numbers. They're getting unemployment in general. Now, there's Correct. some people that are unemployed that have gone beyond the deadline. They're not getting unemployment. So we're only getting numbers that are coming in during that time, continuing claims and new claims that are being Correct. filed. Yeah. So what's a little bit perplexing with this is we're back to you know, basically 12 plus month lows in jobless claims. So so we were in the 240, 250, 260,000 mm-hmm. jobless claims. Yep. So they were starting to see that number rise which is a good thing for interest rates. It's not a good thing for the overall economy. We don't want people to lose their jobs, obviously. But that number has come back down to averaging about 210,000 per week over the month of September. So kind of perplexingly, that number has come down. Um, and then, but moving moving along here, so the, so the quits rate, which is the number of people quitting their jobs each month as a percentage of employment. So- the quits rate is down to 2.3, which is basically pre-pandemic lows. Yep. That would kind of suggest a softer labor market because people generally quit their job to take a new job, Pay presumably more. paying more, right? That's the whole reason people take another job. So the quits rate coming down is saying, okay, people are not feeling as confident in the labor market where they're willing to chance leaving their job to get a new one, or maybe they're just not being recruited away from that job, right? Correct. So that, you know, there's two conflicting things, right? Lower, lower initial jobless claims, but also less people leaving their jobs. There could also be a theory of the jobless claims haven't shown up yet because of the lack, so much severance has been given out to employees that are, you know, people that were laid off. They can't go get unemployment till the severance runs out. So there's a theology we may see more show up that's kind of like backfilled, if you may, because of the severance situation. And then on the softening of the labor market is it also suggests that maybe wages have flattened out. Because if you're not job happened, wages probably are flattening out. You're probably starting to see that become more of a thing. Well, they definitely are. So average hourly earnings have decreased, you know, basically a little over 20% over the last 12 months. <laughs> um, so 
that's a pretty good sign that you've got a softening labor market, right? Employers are not paying as much money to go attract new employees. And, um, you know, really over the course of the 12 months, it's really been pretty much with the exception of a month or two, every single month, consistent declines in average hourly earnings. So people are making less money. They're leaving their jobs less frequently because there's not employers willing to pay more money. They're not being enticed to go somewhere else. So we say all that to say September's job report comes out almost double what expectations were, right? So everything I just said... (laughs) Job report completely defying all of that information. So we just went from the private sector. Now we're going to the BLS job reports. So yes. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Yeah, Bureau of Labor Statistics shows job creations of three hundred thirty-six thousand jobs in September. (laughs) So almost double the expectations. (laughs) Right. Four thousand away from double expectations. So obviously we need to come to the conclusion that the labor market's roaring. There's nothing we can do about it, right? There's nothing the Feds can do about it, right? Right. So I would argue there's more to the story on that as well. So if you look at, um, there's two components of the BLS jobs report. One of them is the business survey, which as you can imagine is what businesses say is happening. The other is the household survey, which as you can imagine is what households are saying. Mm -hmm. So they call households and they survey them and get answers to information. The big takeaway from the household survey is, uh, and this is a trend we've seen over recent months, negative full-time job creations. So negative. the number of full-time jobs being created, according to households, is negative. Meaning they're losing more jobs. They're losing full-time jobs and large increases, 150,000-plus part-time jobs. Say that again. So 150,000-plus part-time jobs being created. Mm. So we're losing full-time jobs. But we're getting more part-time. Taking part-time jobs and, and a large increase in people holding multiple jobs. Ah. There it is. So we've got numbers, right? We've got, we've got administration. It looks good to have numbers that, hey, we're boosting all these. We're creating jobs. What a platform. Hey, we're creating jobs. But we actually have more people. Did I hear you say that was a record of how many people are holding second jobs? I don't know if that's a record or not, but I know it's a big number. Well, I'll go ahead and let you know. It is. It's uh, That is the record high. And, uh, you know, we, we talk about a thriving economy, right? Our economy is thriving. Or just strong, strong job market. Like, who in the hell wants to work two jobs, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to right. work two jobs. Most people hate their first job. You know, that's why you have people dreaming of winning the lottery. Most I like people this so much, I'm going to do it twice yeah, as much. Yeah. No one really likes the first one. They're like, oh, man, I love this so much. Let's go get a second one. So if you're having to work two jobs, that's not a sign of a strong economy. That's a sign of inflation killing you and your household to where you're going to take on a second job that you despise just so you can live and, and, and pay your bills. That's not a strong economy. Yeah, absolutely. And it also isn't a good, strong job market either. Well, and government jobs were significantly more than than they have been averaging. So a lot of those jobs were government-created, which are not as favorable for the economy as private jobs because tax dollars pay government jobs. Deficits grow when the government adds employees. So not to say government jobs are bad, right? Right. Government jobs are very much necessary. But all of the the positive job revisions in this last job report, 119,000 revisions, positive, all government jobs. Which are usually like not the best paying job either. So, you know, and then, and then that just goes hand in hand with, you look at the ADP job report, which is private only, excluding any government jobs. They came out and said 89,000 jobs added in September, which is the lowest since January of 2021. So ADP says 89,000 BLS shows 336,000. With the bulk being in government. And we're seeing this large discrepancy between these two job reports. Like they could not be more opposite. So whatever happens when ADP releases their job report, you can just go ahead and expect that the opposite 
uh, result is going to be uh, on the BLS uh, side on the, things. the BLS it really, side. It's, so, it's been doing that for almost a year. You know, and I and I I say all that. It's hard to say. Hey, we know exactly where the discrepancy lies, but the reality is there is a big discrepancy, right? Some things are telling us job market's good. You peel that back a little bit, not so much. Other reports are saying, hey, it's really not that good. All of these things are are working against the job market. Right. But I think you could summarize that by saying we have a weakening labor market, but we don't have a weak labor market. Well, so soon. you still have a relatively strong labor market according to the data. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say is there's a, a report. It's called the Challenger Job Cut Report. Don't need to tell you what they are measuring there. They're, <laughs> they're measuring job cuts, right? <laughs> but uh, job cuts have increased 198% September 22 to September 23. You take COVID out, that's the largest number of job cuts we've seen since September 2009, which everyone knows were good times, right? Right. So the job cut report is kind of in line with the ADP report and saying that private companies are not looking to hire so much as they're looking to consolidate. But I think you could make a strong argument that um, employers are holding on to their employees, but they're not necessarily looking to hire a bunch of new employees, and they're not looking to pay considerable sums of money to go attract employees away from other places. Which so, is a byproduct of the tightening. Correct. So yeah. the big takeaway here, guys, is, and I know that was a lot of information, but <clears throat> like I said, you got a weakening labor market, but it's going to take longer than I think the feds thought that it would. Yeah. The economy has been surprisingly resilient, you know, and I think that bringing this back to mortgage rates, you're not really going to see meaningful <clears throat> movement lower in mortgage rates until you see initial jobless claims start to break. They start to rise considerably. At that point, I think the feds would feel comfortable saying, okay, maybe we're more open to cuts now that mm -hmm. we see the labor market starting to show some signs of more than softening, right? Well, a significant softening. Of the of the Fed members, seven have already said, we think we should probably see a cut coming, a rate cut. And it, it's seven of them, you know, we're all saying that. And then the other ones have not spoken up yet. But there's a theology that it was a foregone conclusion that we were going to have a, <laughs> a rate hike over these next two meetings. That may be off the table, completely I, I off it's the table. Probably pause is probably the greater probability right. at this point. Yeah. So, you know, you can only hope that the feds say, okay, um, we don't want to do too much. Right. You could argue, argue that they've, they've done too much, but you really hope that they say, okay, maybe this isn't happening as quickly as we'd like, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. Right. Let's not, let's not make it worse than it needs to be. Right. Yeah. So, so there's light at the end of the tunnel. I think that Unfortunately, we didn't get what we wanted this year, right? <laughs> we thought we would be sitting in a much different spot. We didn't get that this year. No. I think that 2024 sets up as you move through Q1 into Q2. It starts to set up for some of the things that we anticipated to happen that will impact rates positively start to happen. Now, I don't think we're going to go from 7.5 plus to 5% by Q2 of next year, but I think that the the conditions of the economy at that point will start to set up, you know, things will start to align where you could see interest rates on the mortgage side start to come down. Yeah. And we just did an entire podcast on <clears throat> that letter from the National Association of Home Builders, the NBA, and National Association of Real Estate Agents to Jerome Powell, describing the discrepancy between the 10-year treasury and the mortgage interest rates. And to your point, we take an entire episode and explain why it doesn't take the Federal Reserve having to reduce short-term interest rates for that to come down. 
there's there's this fictitious amount of inflation inside of the mortgage 30-year fixed rate note that is a discrepancy that's not normally there. And when we get some consistency in our bond market and some consistency from the Federal Reserve in their position and their policy, you're probably going to see that that inflated, you know, discrepancy evaporate. And that's that's why, you know, you could say Q1, Q2, you know, and, and if you want to hear more about that, check out the episode, I believe it's 102 right before this one, and you'll see exactly, or you'll listen to exactly what we're talking about. Absolutely. So, you know, I think big takeaway here for those listening is hang in there. Fourth quarter, maybe not the most bright spot, yep. but better days are ahead for mortgage rates. And, and you know, ultimately, I think that we'll be having different conversations at that point. Yeah. For our audience, if you know, if you like what you're hearing, share the podcast, five-star review it. If you would, you know, uh, leave some commentary on it and, and let us know what's going on in your job market. You know, I love the comments that we're getting on socials. It's giving us a good direction of where we're going, uh, episodes to do. And uh, we, we try to read them all. We can't answer them all, but we try to read them all. So I appreciate when you put it on there. And, you know, even stuff that you guys are asking questions on and corrections and stuff. Sometimes we go hundred miles an hour on the show, might make a mistake. We appreciate pointing it out. We'll come back and we'll correct it on the net show. Um, um, but guys, please, if you would, share the podcast, check us out on our socials, uh, check us out on Apple, Spotify, Google, and Amazon. Daniel, as always, man, thanks for being on the show. Love your insight. Love your lending updates. It's always thorough information. I know our audience loves it as well. I got one more shot, I'm going to make it. One more chance, I'm going to take it. I meant it when I said it, now it's time for me to do it. I got one life to live, so I put all into it, yeah.